Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias. Our co-host Keith Phipps seems to have wandered out of the real world. The last time we saw him, he was headed off into the sunset on Dayglow Rollerblades. But we once again have New York Magazine and Vulture TV critic Jen Cheney with us to fill in. Welcome back, Jen. I am so happy to be here. All I want to do is talk about Barbie. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, all I want to talk about is Keith on Rollerblades, but we'll uh, we'll move forward. (laughs) One of you, I I promise that one of the two of you will get your opportunity very shortly here. The other one, not so much. So last week, we talked to Disney's Enchanted and how it takes a supposedly satirical, but actually pretty loving look at the Disney musical tradition and especially the legacy of Disney princess characters, with their perky I want songs, their tendency to get into trouble, and their bland and handsome princes who don't seem to have much of a life outside of galloping around on horses and having very shiny teeth. This week, we're right back to girls with beautiful hair and boys who love horses, but in a different context. This time, it's Greta Gerwig's already a mega hit Barbie, a send-up of the fashion doll that, much like Enchanted, is both an examination of the tropes she embodies and a loving tribute to Barbie and the kids who love her. But Barbie commits to a lot more introspection, dissection, and analysis than Enchanted allows for, even though it's also a warm satire that clearly isn't taking Barbie too fully to task. Margot Robbie stars as Barbie, one of the many Barbies who live perfect lives in the world of Barbie land. The implication is that they're all imagination-fueled avatars of dolls that exist in the real world, which becomes a problem for Robbie's Barbie when the person playing with her in the real world starts having dark and depressive thoughts that don't belong in the candy land of Barbie's world. When she gets to reality, alongside Ken, played by Ryan Gosling, he runs off, he learns about patriarchy and how the real world is ruled by men, and he brings that idea back to Barbie land, where the Kens take over. Meanwhile, Barbie meets cynical teenager Sasha, played by Ariana Greenblatt, and her mother Gloria, played by America Ferreira, and she learns a lot more about how the world sees Barbie. It's at times a pretty caustic movie about what America demands of women and what Barbie represents, as a commodity and as a role model. But it's also endlessly bouncy, funny, and satirical, the kind of film that doesn't give anyone time to roll a joke around in their brain before it's off to the next one. It's a dense comedy in a Hollywood era that doesn't bring many full-bore comedies to the screen anymore, but it's also openly a message movie that wears its heart on an entire series of ever-changing pink and puffy sleeves. We'll get into it after this break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When my heart 
weeks. Some things have been happening that might be related. When my world shakes. Cold shower. Ooh. Falling off my roof. Ah! And my heels are on the ground. <gasps> Black feet! What do I have to do? You have to go to the real world. You can go back to your regular life, or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel. You have to want to know, okay? Do it again. Closer I am to Closer I am to I'm coming with you. All right, Jen, I just, I, I just want you to go to town. Just let's hear it. Talk Barbie. <laughs> this movie has very quickly become my personality. Um, <laughs> I gosh, I tried it, trying to put into words all the things I love about it. I mean, first of all, I think it's so funny, just so many little details, and and every time I think about those details, I start laughing all over again. Like, <laughs> I just kind of rehashing the movie in my brain has been almost as much fun as watching it the first time. And I also love that while it does acknowledge some of the issues with Barbie and and the body image issues and and all these sort of different things it also like leans into much more serious issues about what it means to be a woman and what is society expect of us what do we expect of ourselves with regard to beauty and what we can accomplish and all these different things and i wish i could remember who who was saying this on twitter but i saw a criticism of the movie talking about how it never leans too far into criticizing Barbie. You know, the idea being that because, you know, Mattel had to be on board with this, that they couldn't really push it as far as they wanted to. I feel like that's part of our, or at least mine, feeling about Barbie in general, is that so many women have a love-hate relationship with her. And I felt like Greta Gerwig did a really great job of kind of laying that all out and doing it within the context of this weirdo Wizard of Oz that she's created. I can't wait to go see it again. I feel like it's a movie I'm going to watch over and over and over again and see different things in every time I watch it. I love the description of this movie as a weirdo Wizard of Oz. That is not a comparison that has occurred to me. And it's you're so right. It's it's just such a, a great way of framing it. I'll throw out another comparison that I thought of while watching it that I believe will also speak to Jen, which is Clueless, my my beloved Clueless, and I know Jen, <laughs> Jen's beloved Clueless as, as well, and uh, for what it's worth, a movie that I can watch anytime uh, for any reason uh, over and over and over again, and I feel like Barbie is going to be the same. Like There was there was never a world in which I was not going to like Barbie. I feel like I, <laughs> I've been like... <laughs> talking about us getting to this pairing since the very first teaser dropped <laughs> uh, like m- months and months ago. And like Greta Gerwig is like three for three in my book. I, and I, I think along with, with Jordan Peele, she is the the only other filmmaker to have like all three of their like first, their three first films all discussed here. So definitely like Jordan Peele, just like kind of a director who's come out of the gate super, super strong with Lady Bird, Little Women, and now Barbie. A perfect film. (laughs) Uh, Just little pink hearts popping off my head thinking about Barbie. But uh, also it was, uh, I guess, to kind of get a little deeper. Well, first of all, to not get a little deeper, as far as like the clueless comparison I was talking about, what rung that bell for me is sort of the it finding depth and shallowness, which is something that I always loved about clueless. Or perceived shallowness. Exactly, exactly. And not mocking its supposedly stupid, shallow 
protagonist. You know, it, it has a respect for a figure that is not often afforded much, if any, respect. And so that vibe, I think, is just just like I, I really tapped into that vibe. But also, like I in going into this movie, I was not expecting it to, America Ferrera to play such a big part of it, and she is a huge part of why this movie works for me. I love her in this movie. I I mean, I love her in general. Superstore is. Uh, she's great in Superstore, obviously U- Ugly Betty, but this is this feels like a real breakout moment for America Ferrera, almost more than Margot Robbie, just because that performance is so like literally iconic uh, in, in in what she is doing. But like the fact that America Ferrera can deliver this incredibly like didactic monologue about the role of women in society and it working. I mean, obviously, that is uh, attributable to Gerwig and Bombach's script to a certain extent, but she's the one who has to make it work. And I think she really does. I mean, it's also attributable to the fact that everything she says is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a sense of recognition. I, there's a, a point where Sasha, the teenager, goes off on Barbie. One of her middle school friends turns to her and says, you know, destroy her, destroy Barbie. And Sasha just like launches into a statement about how Barbie is basically a capitalist nightmare, just a creation that's built around consumerism and obsession with looks and unreal body standards. And everything she says is true. Everything she says is recognizable. And the fact that it feels cynical doesn't make it any less true. When Gloria gives her speech about what's expected of women in America, it's also, you know, cynical and and dark and aggressive. And you can certainly make the argument that men are, in their own way, also faced with an impossible set of conflicting standards, which the movie very lightly touches on. But that's not what this, this story is about. But nonetheless, everything she says is true. And at the same time, the fact that she's just coming out and blatantly saying it, and that the movie contextualizes it in a way that that weaponizes it, makes it useful. It's not just a rant for the sake of having a rant. Understanding the the conflicts and, and the inherent contradictions becomes a weapon that's useful going forward for the characters. It's not just, let's complain about how bad the world is. It's if we educate everybody to the point where they can recognize these contradictions and how stuck we get with them, we can evade them and move on past them and and live better lives. And I, I kind of love that for everybody in this movie, that it's not just a cynical exploration of how much it sucks to be a woman. It's a funny movie that gets a, a bunch of like gender absolutist stuff that holds us down and then shows us how it doesn't have to hold us down. Uh, okay, should we, should okay, we let Scott. the man talk? <laughs> you want me to say stuff about, yeah, no, I was, I was uh, gearing up. So that speech was one of the moments that had me kind of thinking like, is this movie going to change the world? In some way? <laughs> like, 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 because, because one of the things that's kind of thrilling about this film and I felt it at the screening I was at, I was at this public, press screening that was mostly public and everybody was just like dressed up for this thing it was just it was it was basically women and gay men mostly and just everyone was wearing was wearing pink and taking pictures and there's all this incredible enthusiasm and then the movie happened and you get to a moment like that you know and, and then you see how how well the film does overall it's just like it's kind of a thrilling pop culture moment I mean, paired with the Oppenheimer thing, of course, too, uh, it just feels like such a substantive moment. 
in a total desert, this o- oasis in an absolute Hollywood desert that we are living in right now, just like dries the Sahara. We get this incredible moment. So there, I was feeling that, but 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 mostly I, the, the the other thing that struck me with that, that monologue and it ended up being kind of my way in with the review is that the sort of needle threading that uh, is being described by America Ferrer's character is is what Greta Gerwig has to accomplish with this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of the all of the boxes that she has to tick at the same time. It's just such an impossible challenge that she somehow pulls off with with a great deal of like wit and relative ease i mean it's a film that can't be almost can't be as good as lady bird or little women just because there are so many restrictions in play here in terms of it being a piece of studio product about a you know with mattel involved and it's taking from a lot of other uh, there are a lot of models that it has to follow and a lot of you know it's a different kind of a kind of a thing it's her it's her it's like greta gerwig's arena show you know, I mean, she can do she can do Lady Bird and that is her cool club show. But like <laughs> if she's going to do her arena show, it's going to be kind of big and loud and aimed for the rafters. But the power in that is if that if you pull it off, it can have this just seismic effect on an audience. And I, and I kind of felt that watching Barbie. I was kind of excited by the experience. There is always that problem of having the thing that you're lampooning sponsored by the thing that's being lampooned and how that limits you. But here, while I I feel like the movie doesn't go super hard in tearing Barbie apart, it's pretty caustic about Mattel in general. The whole gag, not really commented on, but just very, very visible, that all of the people behind Barbie marketing are men and like older men, most of them older white men most of them yes men who will Farrell is the the ceo who kind of gives a little you know as a parent of a daughter and the daughter of a parent or some some <laughs> right. like weird thing that he flips both ways that doesn't make sense speech about you know how much he loves women and therefore he's the person to un- like properly understand barbie and how to market barbie to little girls like there's a lot of subversion and cynicism in that whole setup and in pretty much every step that the Mattel board takes throughout the course of this movie. And it kind of feels like they get away with it because they don't ever, there's no equivalent big speech about how dumb it is to have the primary toy for little girls be created and and produced and planned by 55-year-old men. It's just an on-site gag. It's just something that we're watching and particularly watching like through the lens of Will Ferrell doing a very, very Will Ferrell straight-faced imbecile character. I don't often enjoy Will Ferrell all that much, but I really enjoyed him in this movie. Yeah, this movie's like ideas or portrayals of villainy are really interesting to me because like the Mattel C-suite, like they're kind of like collectively villainous, but they're not. There's that like one line that Will Ferrell has when they're like chasing her back to Barbie land where he says, like, you know, we just want to like make toys and thrill young girls, but not in a weird way or or something like that, you know, like because of his sort of natural buffoonishness, there's not really like a sense that his character is evil so much as just representative of a of a system that is bad. And there's also kind of a mirror of that with Ken, and I'm sure we will get uh, (laughs) deeper into Ken soon, but the uh, 
there's a moment kind of late in the film where where Barbie's saying like, oh, you know, well, we we can't really blame Ken, you know, basically saying like he's like a product of of the system. And then Gloria's like, he stole your house, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> um, I really want to see this movie again. <laughs> but like kind of in both cases, it's kind of like, you know, poking at the idea that bad individuals can be products of a bad system, but that doesn't necessarily make them not bad, <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you know. But at the same time, to go back to sort of the Mattel of it all, there isn't really an overt bad guy in this film the way there is in Enchanted, say. You, you know, our villain figures, such as they are, are, I guess, nuanced in their villainy and, um, and also likable <laughs> in, in their different ways. And more importantly, I think, on the same line of thought, is there is no female villain. There is no mm. Susan Sarandon type character who's jealous of the princess or, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a little bit of an element of a mean girl thing in that the way they treat Kate McKinnon's weird Barbie where she's sort of cast off into her own universe, but they eventually do like apologize. But you don't see any of those, any of the other Barbies, they're not mean. Like for the most part, mm-hmm. all of the women in this movie are holding each other up. And that's like a remarkable thing to see in a movie of this magnitude and that's this mainstream. And for something revolving around kids, because Mm -hmm. the story that we tend to get out of like anything revolving around elementary school, middle school, high school with teenage girls, there's always got to be a queen bee that's Mm -hmm. more popular and and pretty and rich than everybody else. There's always got to be jealousy and backbiting and competition and struggling to kind of establish yourself against all of the other girls. And here you inherently have a admittedly utopious fantasy world that's modeled after a little girl playing with 14 Barbies and one Ken. But at the same time, you're you're right. It's incredibly refreshing. And I feel like if this movie had been made 20 years ago, it would have unquestionably been about the Barbie that is jealous of our main Barbie and how she wants to take over Barbie land and be in charge of all the Barbies. I would say, though, that with regard to villains, I, I think that the film has much bigger fish to fry than kind of dealing with these sort of individual individual conflicts because its target is so much is so much systemic right i mean (laughs) like like it it it, it wants to it wants to kind of pick apart the patriarchy and, and kind of get into you know gender roles and things like that you know to try to attach that to any one individual you know, or even you know, it would be a too narrow a target, and, and it's it ends up being more powerful to not have villains, as you, we talked about with Mattel. It's like because I think if you if you if you can narrow it down, if these are all just a bunch of bad guys running running a toy company, then you're kind of missing out on. Then you can kind of say, oh, those are the bad guys, mm-hmm. R- mm-hmm. rather than saying, oh, they're yeah. in a system. They're just get them out of here, and it'll be fixed. Yeah, right, right. Just push one off is, of the top like, of no, the building. Just, they're just seemingly, you know. You know, maybe they are trying to do as good a job as they can do, but they're in a system that uh, is unfair and has has kind of yielded, you know, a pretty crummy world. Scott, you mentioned that feeling in the movie of could this movie change the world? And that's a feeling I got, too, if only because, I mean, I've I've just thought pretty much since uh, like being a teenager confronted with the slut versus prude dichotomy where there is no right way to be a woman. If you have sex, you're bad. If you don't have sex, you're bad. Either way, you get judged. And calling 
like teenagers in particular, calling their attention to that dichotomy, to that kind of contradiction helps defang it, helps them see that like there's always going to be somebody criticizing you specifically for not doing what they want and who will feel entitled to some aspect of you. But knowing that it's there helps you ignore it because knowing that it's there helps you realize trying to treat that like it's something that you can navigate and do the right thing through. It just, it's not going to work for you. So you've got to find your own way out of it. But there are so many different ways that we get these kinds of messages that we're not aware of them or that we we don't confront them. And the way this movie kind of just comes out and lays them all on the table and says, hey, look at these things. And then it does the same thing with toxic masculinity. The whole idea of of Ken running off to the real world, looking around and saying, hey, in Barbie land, women are in charge. There's a woman president. There's a woman, all woman Supreme Court. Like women have all of the major roles and it's just understood that women are in charge of everything. But in the real world, it's men. Let's try that for ourselves. He brings this back to Barbie land and everybody immediately falls for it. Everybody immediately forgets what their lives were like and they're kind of hypnotized by this new system. And I think presenting patriarchy as something that's artificial, that requires everybody's buy-in, that's a little silly and, and easily parodied, and that doesn't serve men any better than it serves women. Like all of that feels like kind of a feminism 101 class that here is presented in just such a a lively and silly and joke-filled way that it it seems defanged. I'm certainly not suggesting this movie is going to fix uh, sexism or just like, you know, tear apart the patriarchy. But it does really feel like another case of just like the more you're aware of some of these societal constructs and the ways that they limit you, the more likely that you'll have some kind of weapon to fight back. See, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't even use the word defanged. What I would say is almost like the thing about, uh, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. You know, it's like that kind of presentation of just of just all of this is actually quite funny and approachable and it doesn't feel like you know and even at the point where we're being where we are getting a speech you know it's still i don't know i mean that the speech is the speech but it, but everything around it kind of works and you know if, I, if i'm allowed for a moment to use the phrase as the father of daughters uh, <laughs> i've been dying to so, ask you so my scott cho- so my, my <laughs> I, I, I saw this at a at a uh, screening uh, my uh, my my wife and and children saw it on opening day and it was, I mean, they, they loved it and, it, and it, of course, immediately sparked the right kind of discussions in in the car on the on the on the ride. And we went to have pizza afterwards, and you know, I was immediately talking about favorite moments of the movie and things that they things they responded to, and it was all the right stuff. I mean, the film had them in the right mindset. I mean, my my fifteen year old is already in that mindset. Uh, she's got you know all sorts of progressive minded like she's got a you know her her backpack is full of uh, uh, what do they call the buttons like uh, ban off our bodies buttons and things like that but but you know by my 12 year old you know she uh, this is all you know she's kind of coming into this awareness and uh, having a movie like this around as a touchstone is a is no small thing in my in my view and I think to that point it's notable and, and remarkable that the film it doesn't try to make make these ideas cute like it calls the patriarchy the patriarchy mm-hmm. it uses real language and you know says these ideas straightforwardly and it, there is that spoonful of sugar element you're talking about because it's all like wrapped up in this just amazing to look at funny package but it's not trying to like it's not coming up with like some cute stand-in for the idea of patriarchy it's just saying what that is and giving 
presumably younger viewers the tools to talk about those things openly. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it dumbs anything down. At no point did I feel like it was condescending to its audience or anything like that. And to go back to what Scott was saying, I mean, this is some of this stuff may be feminism 101 for a lot of us, but for these younger women and girls, this is maybe new information to them. Like I was talking to a friend who went with another friend of hers and her friend's daughter, who I think is also 12. And her friend's daughter was like, what's cellulite? And I'm like, you know what? God bless. God bless. It's nice that you don't know what that is. Um, but I'm sure there were other things that were new ideas, terminologies, and things like that 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 probably she learned from this. So I I, I agree. I think it it could really have a make a major impression on people who are seeing that at that age where you're just ingesting this kind of stuff for the first time. Well, in most culture, of course you know, invisibly and thoughtlessly reinforces all the stuff that this movie is unpacking, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so to have that moment of self-awareness is absolutely critical. I mean, you're you're literally, Gregory is teaching young people how to think <laughs> in a way. I mean, with this movie. And it's and it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful thing, you know, especially when, it, again, there's a shitload of sugar on this thing. It is a very entertaining movie. And, a and shitload it's a, of sugar makes the sugar medicine sugar. go down. I, I remember that song. I love Mary any, Poppins. <laughs> there's no medicine. There's just, you, know, you can't taste the medicine. It's just so, it's so sugary and delicious. So it's something that people, that uh, it's obviously a phenomenon. It's a, it's a movie that people are going to turn to again and again. They're going to watch it you know uh, generation after generation is going to watch it and it's going to be a big deal i mean the thing is like it, it, this is something this my out of left field pairing of course when we come back from this these movies we have ideas for pairings and one of my one of my sort of out of left field pairings was the film adam's rib which is a hepburn tracy movie where they they're they're a married couple on opposite sides of the of a court case they're lawyers and the reason i picked it was because it was a cultural moment in the sense it was kind of describing is sort of the ultimate of the battle of the sexes, you know, rom-coms of that period where it was reflecting a lot of tension and a lot of arguments that were happening out in the real world and the actual culture, all of that, you know, the movie became sort of a battlefield for that stuff. And to me, that's kind of what Barbie accomplishes here is that it is that it, this battlefield that we are still very much in in the culture in 2023 is is being reflected in a very powerful way and in a very entertaining way on screen people are, are talking a lot about ryan gosling's performance in this for very very good reasons uh in, in something i wrote for vulture today i said he's acting in like at least seven different movie genres simultaneously <laughs> in this he's in a western he's in a comedy he's in a rom-com He's in a really bad remake of Point Break. He's just in a lot of different things all at once. <laughs> and uh, and he just pulls it off. And also, like, when you do get to the moment where he's having his own kind of existential crisis, because his identity is completely tied to Barbie's. And if he's not Barbie's sort of kind of boyfriend, he has no idea who he is. First of all, what a concept. The man is the secondary character and can't deal with it. Love mm-hmm. it. Love that whole mm-hmm. idea. But But because he's so good, you really do kind of feel bad for him. And normally... I would want to punch someone in the face who sings Matchbox 20 the way that he does, but I <laughs> I really empathize with him. And speaking of Matchbox 20, I don't know if you guys have gone back and listened to his version of Push because it's on Spotify now. I To Ryan Gosling's version? Ryan Gosling's version. It is so, like the way he says, take it for granted. He doesn't even say granted <laughs> as a word. It's just like a grunt. I laugh every, every time. It's just give, I mean, I know it's early, but I'm like, give him an Oscar? I don't know. <laughs> It's got to be a, a nice guy's makeup Oscar, though. I think yeah. it's just a really important point uh, to make here that you you don't empathize with him in the movie 
because Ryan Gosling is so good at selling this character, even though he is. You don't empathize with him in the movie because you yourself are a generous person, though I'm assuming you do. The movie empathizes with him. You know, the movie does authentically care about the fact that he starts off with some very shallow, petty motives. He is jealous of any other Ken that looks at the Barbie he considers to be his. He's possessive. He's controlling. He wants more than he can have, and he can. He feels very entitled about it, and he's very sulky about it. He's playing the nice guy that's her best friend who gets close to her, but because he wants something. And then he becomes aware of all of that. And he becomes aware that maybe he it's just a lack of power that he's uh, that, that's make, making him suffer. So he seeks power and control and the ability to subjugate Barbies and the ability to like laugh in the face of his own particular Barbie. And none of that makes him happy. And by the end of the movie, he's aware of all this and he's aware that he needs to work on himself. He's aware that he's... It's not just like, a, again, it's not a scoldy message about, you know, you're the problem, Ken. Men are the problem. It's a message about how society kind of sells you a package where you're supposed to have power and that's supposed to make you happy. And you're defined by the kind of, you know, accoutrements that you have and the kind of woman that you can pull. And he realizes that he wants to know who he is outside of Barbie. He wants to know who he is as a person and and what he actually wants. And I think that, you know, as much as this movie is focused on kind of educating women about the, the forms of society that are like shaping them and restricting them in unhealthy ways, it's also very empathetic towards Ken and the problems, the way that toxic masculinity holds people back, the way all of these forms of here is what a man is allowed to be, here's what a man is allowed to feel, here's what a man is allowed to express, here's what a man is allowed to want. Like all of those things are are painfully restrictive and annoying and controlling. And men suffer from it too. And in this movie, openly acknowledges that and lets him work through it and look for a path out of it. And I think there are, there are a lot of internet boys that have not seen this movie and are super, super mad about it, <laughs> uh, including, of course, some fairly famous conservative commentators uh, who are just waving the hate flag because it uses the word patriarchy. And, you know, they they might benefit from actually seeing the movie and seeing how sympathetic it is towards the men, how much it is thinking about the men and how the men also could be happier if they managed to get around all of these strictures. Yeah. I mean, just the idea like this, that, that you see people uh, of these people saying that this movie uh, hates men is like. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> that is. That's yeah. just, you're not watching the. Are you even watching this movie? This is not. You know, and the thing. The thing about it is, it's like Ken begins this movie as is beach. <laughs> that's it. He's beach, and like, and his day is not that. His day is not so great. If uh, Barbie is not a part of it, doesn't activate him in some way, and and so and the and his arc is really to kind of figure out that, that he can be he can be a more complicated person and and uh and can you know find some depth of character and you know there's uh and i i, I don't i can't put any of this better than than tasha did but it certainly it's not a film that is you know an angry film or a hateful film or in any way i mean i, th- I think it expresses quite a bit of you know optimism and you know faith that that people can change and be be happier for it i'm going to tread carefully here because i agree with everything that's been said and it's already stated. I love this movie. I love Ryan Gosling's performance. There is a point 
in the third act where I started to get the feeling that Ken was taking up a little too much oxygen Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the movie. And that is a very like light critique because part of the reason for that is just because it's so well done and because Ryan Gosling does such a good job with it that like it you kind of can't help that happening but I did have a moment it was, it was during the big Ken musical number where <laughs> where I was like this is great but also what's up with Barbie right now <laughs> you know and that feeling kind of just like extends a little bit to the just general reaction to the movie and you know the the various memeing of it that's happened but I can't really be mad about it because it is just like integrated into the film's ideas about patriarchy and toxic masculinity so well but it's just like I said kind of a a feeling uh, a fleeting feeling slash thought I had during sort of the last third of the film is like this feels it's it's Ken heavier than I was expecting, I guess. It's you had had Knuff. I had had <laughs> Whereas I say, there's never Knuff. <laughs> I, think, I think that that's entirely fair. And I also think maybe it comes from a, a place of Barbie and Ken both go through their big dark nights of the soul, their big crises. And he does his by getting more more vehement and louder and taking up more space. And mm. she goes through hers by withdrawing and taking up less space. There's Laying literally face a point. Down on the ground. <laughs> she just lies face down on the ground like a discarded Barbie. And they keep they keep turning her over. What works for me in all of that is it it just means we get more Kate McKinnon, which we we touched on Kate McKinnon as mm-hmm. weird Barbie. Uh, I I understand being like maybe a little side eye towards the way she's the only way in which this movie kind of has a, a mean girls aspect is the way everybody talks about her. On the other hand, it's, it's Kate McKinnon being mm. weird Barbie. There, I I did not realize that she was in this movie in this role. And as soon as they started talking about the whole concept of weird Barbie and showing us scenes of like a little girl, like hacking the hair off of Barbie and crayoning on her face, I was like, who are they going to, who are they going to get to play this character? Who's going to be weird Barbie. And the second Kate McKinnon appeared on screen, I was like, how could I even have wondered? (laughs) How could this have even been a question mark? The fact that she never feels hurt or crushed by the way people refer to her. She just, she shrugs. She says, I, I'm owning it. She seems happy in and of herself in her own identity, I think is is really strong and important. She's not being bullied. She's aware that people, other people can't appreciate uh, the wonderfulness that is her. And she's just kind of rocking it every day. And I, that all makes me very happy. But also when Barbie kind of retracts from the movie, weird Barbie comes forward. Mm-hmm. Well, I also appreciated that character just as a nod to this idea that, you know, little girls do some violent things with their toys and do some freaky (laughs) things with their toys. They don't all sit there and have tea or like play smoochy face with Ken. Like they they rip off heads and shave off hair and all that kind of stuff. And I love that. I used to throw darts at my Barbies. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere in Barbie land, there's a dart Barbie that just has darts sticking out of her that remembers you. Maybe not as fondly as you might hope. Uh, and I love the way that, like, you know, she was always standing with, like, one leg flipped up because <laughs> they had just dismantled the way that she yeah. could position her body. Yeah, I loved all of that, too. Oh, man. I know we need to get into connections, but just because I, I don't 
see necessarily a direct one-to-one comparison uh, for him in Enchanted. And we do have the expert here. Can we give it up for Alan real quick? Alan. <laughs> we, we do yeah. have an Alan expert in the house. I love Jen that I'm not an expert. I'm a written. scholar in Alan. Because of one thing I Jen has specifically written about Alan and why like Alan is the kind of the, the secret unsung hero of this movie. Uh, you you want to speak to Alan, Jen? I just love that, first of all, the doll... This doll existed and like his entire identity was he's Ken's friend and he fits into Ken's clothes. And if you look at the original <laughs> version of this doll, it's like, who is going to buy this? Um, he, he has no personality whatsoever. And, and that's really what they build the character on that Michael Sarah as Alan just is like kind of a blank slate. And he's the perfect actor to do that. He is the best just deliverer of dry humor. But, but he's still like kind of an interesting character. Like he is the one guy who, when Ken brings the patriarchy back to Barbie land, he's like, you know what? I don't want any part of this. Can I get out of here? Like, he immediately goes well, off with the it's women. It's not just him. It's it's also Sugar's Daddy and uh, and uh, Earring Magic. Uh, oh, thank Ken. you. Okay. Thank <laughs> the, you for correcting so me. Well, but, but there is kind of this feeling of like, it's it's the girls and the gays against the, the patriarchy because <laughs> right. Alan is also like for a long time has been kind of gay coded. Right. He's Ken's you know right and he um, has the rainbow shirt he's ken's best friend who wants ken to take so, off all his clothes so alan can get into them there's nothing gay about that what are you talking about yeah. but he has this great moment where he like when he is trying to escape and they encounter these this construction set up and he just like beats up all these dudes and then they're like yeah let's just go back and like that's just such an alan thing to happen like i just i just relate to alan as just like nothing ever goes his way but he just keeps on going and wearing that dumb mm-hmm. shirt. <laughs> <laughs> did did uh, any of you see what Michael Sarah wore to the Barbie World premiere red carpet? I don't know. Was it Ken's clothes? He wore the exact same thing that Ryan Gosling wore. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I missed that. I have to go find that picture. That's oh great. gosh, I do too. I think uh, I think it's time for a break ahead of us getting into connections. But really, it's time for a break so we can all go look up that picture. <laughs> we'll give you time to go find Michael Sarah on the red carpet wearing everything Ryan Gosling is wearing, and we'll be right back with connections. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. I got us both ice cream. Cool. Hi, Barbie. 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 Hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. 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 Oh, hi, Alan. There are no multiples of Alan. He's just Alan. Yeah, I'm confused about that. Now it's time for Connections, which we're titling Ken Actions this time around, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I feel like we should start here with musical production numbers, in part just because we didn't talk a whole lot about Barbie's musical production numbers. There's the big I'm Just Ken song. We talked a little bit about the the Matchbox 20 cover. There are also a bunch of Barbie-themed songs in this movie that are kind of pretty subversive background music if you're listening i can't i can't wait to rewatch this movie with the subtitles on so i can get like all of the lyrics in the background describing the action and making jokes about barbie there's just like a, a kind of a metatextual thing where if you're listening really carefully to the soundtrack there's a whole bunch more jokes going on 
that you you don't get if you just like let it operate as, as oral wallpaper. But there are some big musical numbers in this movie, even though it's not really billed as a musical. In the same way, Enchanted wasn't necessarily billed as a musical. It's not wall-to-wall music, but it does have big production numbers because it's making fun of an era and a genre that has big musical production numbers. So that's that's something I just wanted to kind of like dive into a little bit here is how these two movies use music differently and uh, also kind of <laughs> the same way in terms of helping the the storytelling, setting the mood, and also just kind of establishing the the satirical aspect of it all. Well, I mean, we got to talk about the Lizzo song and, and Barbie, right? The, the, I mean, just talking about establishing, I mean, it's the, it's the first song and it, it kind of, I, I guess like it like has a similar place in the film as in Enchanted, the song that's in the animated uh, sequence that I can never remember. But True Love's sort Kiss. Of, yes, True Love's Kiss. Thank you, of course. But oh man, that Lizzo song was, I think maybe my biggest, well, no, I, there were so many laughs uh, in, in the film, but like my first big laugh of the movie was during that song when she's spelling out pink, P-I-N-K, and like the first time it's K, cool, <laughs> and then the second time it's K, death. <laughs> and that's just like, it's just such a specific type of joke that is very hard to work organically into a song and I think having someone like Lizzo who just is such has so much personality in the way she sings it was so important to kind of like giving you that big splashy Barbie land opening while at the same time like keying you into what this film's humor is going to be like and it's sort of its comedic voice through song and like I said, Enchanted kind of does that. Uh, I feel like it's going to kind of be like a recurring <laughs> phrase in this connection. Says Enchanted <laughs> kind of does that, <laughs> um, too. But it, that one's more just like funny in concept, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of what it's referencing and it being just sort of like a amplified slash dumbed down version of the song of the musical trope that is referencing whereas the uh, opening song in barbie is just like kind of wholly original in a way that the film itself is yeah the other thing that's important about that sequence is that what we're watching happen is really tapping into the way that people play with barbies when they're kids like the shower goes on, but there's no water coming out. And like mm-hmm. she's drinking milk, but there's nothing coming out. And mm-hmm. I, and we saw this in the trailers, but like it blew my mind the first time I saw it when she takes off her heels and her, and her foot is still arched. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, I never once in my entire life thought about that being strange until this very second. <laughs> like I just never thought about the fact that Barbie's foot should go down when I take the shoe off. And just that is just like an insidious idea that was planted in my brain from when I was a little girl. And then when Margot Robbie like kind of floats down, because that's how you would play with Barbies. They don't go downstairs. They float to the next floor. I just thought that was all so smart and just very well done. I'm trying to find the the lyrics to the Lizzo song, the, specifically the the reprise, because the yeah. original, uh, the lyrics to the original Pink are very easy to find online. They're all over the place. But I mean, talking about that kind of like scene setting, humor setting, subversion thing, the point where there's kind of a break in the song, and then when she comes back to it, there's there's some kind of lyric that's effectively like, "Hey, I wasn't finished. Pay attention." Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> where again. There's just sort of a subversive meta element to that. And we talked a lot about the meta humor in Enchanted. Here, it's just kind of a meta humor of 
you're expecting this to be, again, oral wallpaper, background music, and I'm not going to let you ignore me, which kind of fits <laughs> into the, the themes of the song, but also, again, just subverts the entire idea of music in the background in a movie. So I, it's just a, a really small, playful moment that to me feels a lot like the whole moment of Happy Working Song, where you have all of these vermin coming in, and it's just kind of a subversion of of expectations based on like a, a course of a princess has animal companions who help her clean because she doesn't want to get her hands dirty by spending a lot of time cleaning. In this case, it's New York City, so it's going to be rats and, rats and roaches. In another case, it's going to be Barbie Land. So the the musical background is self aware, talking to you directly, and has things to say about death. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I, I, of course, I've just, I've only just, I've seen Barbie just, just the once. So, so the uh, songs, the lyrics, they don't, I don't have a great recall on them. But, but I, you know, and maybe they're not as just immediately, you know, catchy or something as, as uh, some, as a couple of the better songs in Enchanted. But what, what does kind of stick out to me in Barbie are, are is the choreography and how much you know Gerwig sort of seizes that opportunity as well it, you know the, the 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 quality of the dance sequences the quality of the shapes of the of, of the of the sets of the of the dancers uh it felt very in command of very old old Hollywood in a way and and um I, I kind of appreciated the the amount of energy and thought and and talent that was put into that into those numbers at what they they weren't sort of half-assed i mean there, there's you know in a, in a way kind of the like the biggest number in enchanted is fine and it kind of builds to this big thing where everybody's sort of dancing in the park but you know the way it's kind of staged it's not it's not cohesive in the way that some that the numbers in uh in in barbie are they they have kind of a nice you know kind of beautifully classically choreographed feel to them well and it also helps that you know gerwig kind of staged all of those barbie land scenes are on like classic old sound stages and meant to evoke right. mm -hmm. older films in the way that they were shot. And I think that makes it, I don't know, like a little old fashioned in a way, but also like more magical. Um, and, mm -hmm. it, and in a way, subconsciously, it makes you kind of revert back to when you were a kid and like really using your imagination to build a world as opposed to like having it all CGI'd in for you. I really like that she made that choice. Yeah, it really feels like it takes it out of the real world and injects an artificiality in the same kind of way, like in particular, how do you know, kind of creates an artificial central park, like even though it's being shot outside and like in familiar settings, where apparently they had a huge problem with crowd control, because people kept trying to get to, to Patrick Dempsey. It's still just very clearly a little artificial, like bubble of a world and barbie land is is kind of the same thing but then we go even further into it with i'm just ken which kind of echoes a, a classic musical dream ballet where suddenly we pull everything out of like even a, a space even the artificial space of barbie land or kendom it falls away in favor of like these these empty echoing stages full of colored key lights and it feels very classic musical while also feeling just kind of like you know neo dance effectively just just very like modern dance stripped down 
And it really makes you pay attention, which I think is an important part. As we we talked about Enchanted's kind of like slow slide downward throughout the film, I think with any film that starts really strong, as Barbie does, there is a tendency to get uh, you know, it's we're an hour and a half into the movie. We've been here for a while. Even if you're engaged, you're maybe a little less engaged than you were at the very beginning. So let's do something to like really visually startling to shake you up, to shake you out of the action and, and take you into this completely different, weird space. I got kind of the same feeling out of the Ken battlefield as well. It's just suddenly... We're still in a space that's been established, but it looks and feels completely different with a completely different kind of artificiality just to kind of keep grabbing you and shaking you and making sure you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. I want to bring in a citation uh, right right now from uh, uh, Vogue's cover story on Margot Robbie and, and Barbie, but uh, it has some quotes from uh, Greta Gerwig in it, too. And she specifically calls out uh, old soundstage Technicolor musicals, uh, especially The Red Shoes and Next Picture Show favorite, Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And I'm going to quote her what she says, which is, they have such a high level of what we came to call authentic artificiality. You have a painted sky in a soundstage, which is an illusion, but it's also really there. The painted backdrop is really there. The tangibility of the artifice is something that we kept going back to. And I love that. I mean... I love everything Gerwig does and says, apparently. But uh, it reminds me of what I was saying in the first part of this discussion about Clueless and sort of like the finding depth in shallow or surface level stuff, like uh, the authenticness of artificiality. Authentic artificiality is just like a really intriguing idea to me. And to see how it plays out in Barbie is super exciting. And I think in terms of Enchanted, like that is you know, it's just kind of more on a flat level of quote unquote reality as far as like the visual of it, you know, like it is just like, there's something fantastic happening in our world, but there's no sort of visual cue that it is other than just it's kind of big spectacleness. But Barbie kind of ratchets that up with this very soundstage Technicolor approach. Yeah. And just to to jump off of that, I think Amy Heckerling, who directed Clueless, and and Greta Gerwig, both are real, real serious movie lovers and have a really strong film vocabulary and understood visually what they wanted to do and what, you know, influences they were pulling from. I don't know if you had a chance to watch the Letterboxd interview with Greta Gerwig, where she she talked about some of the movies that you mentioned, but um, Uh I feel feel like she mentions Grease at one point, and in that just Ken... Mm song, there's a point where they're all in black and it really reminded me of Grease Lightning. So I feel like she's just pulling from all these different things that on some subconscious level resonate. Like, I mean, for example, like me playing with Barbies and loving Grease are two symbiotic experiences in my life that I remember having at the same time. And so it's tapping into something in your brain that just like takes you back there. Whereas I think, not to say that the people who made Enchanted are not movie lovers and we're not pulling from a lot of things, but I feel like mostly what they're pulling from is Disney. And mm-hmm. so the world exactly. just doesn't feel as wide as it does in Barbie. Uh, one of the kind of major connections or points of comparison between, uh, of contrast between these movies that I wanted to, to kind of talk about was that, it, I guess it would be, is, is the collision between, between Barbie and Giselle and then the, from, who are from a f- fantasy world into this real world or, uh, and uh, how that feeds into a certain fish out of water comedy but in one case, I, I, I think I think the key with Barbie 
it, what makes it more successful ultimately is that Giselle it has that ability to transform the world that she enters in a way. She still has a certain amount of power. She's persuasive. She brings a certain fairy dust to New York <laughs> and changes things. I like that that Barbie kind of just hits a brick wall. <laughs> you know, I, I like that she can't come and just change everything. Like like this is this is this is a very intractable situation that she's found herself in, and and so that tension it's not just a fish out of water thing but the, uh, it's a very serious tension that kind of gets at the themes of the film and, and, and it's it's not something that Gerwig just surrenders at a certain point in the way that Enchanted does. I feel like part of that comes from just the, the fact that Giselle had no sense that the real world existed. It's kind of like she's fallen into like a, a dark dimension that she knew nothing about and she has to figure out how to survive there. And because she's so naive and, and innocent, she just sort of falls back on letting other people take care of her. Whereas Barbie had a conception of the real world. She talks about it in her her opening. We hear about it even in the opening monologue. The idea that all the Barbies are aware of the real world and they just think that it's a place where they've solved all of the problems by existing. Like, of course, women are in charge of the real world as well, because the existence of Barbie taught them that women can be anything. Like, of course, the world is perfect out there the way it is for them. And Barbie has to deal with disillusion in a way that Giselle just really doesn't. Giselle keeps trying to figure out, well, at some point, Edward's going to come and rescue me. Barbie doesn't have any rescuer to lean back on. She certainly does not believe that Ken is going to come along and fix things. She kind of keeps forgetting Ken exists. She hasn't been programmed to think of Ken as somebody who solves problems or who is going to appear out of nowhere and marry her and then they'll live happily ever after. She has to actually deal with the systemic disappointment of it all and her own helplessness. And that just means there's a much bigger drama in that story. You know, the much more relatable emotions and a much more real world problem to be faced as opposed to I've had to wait two two whole days and my prince hasn't shown up to fix everything yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I hesitate to use this language because it feels Oppenheimer coded, but (laughs) this movie like blows up a lot of the ideas we have about what is supposed to happen in a movie like this. Like, she doesn't care about being with a guy at all. Like it's not even remotely something she's concerned with. And and she doesn't, at no point does the movie try to steer her in that direction. So we have some happy ending with Ken. Like that's not what her destiny is at all. And, you know, Enchanted doesn't quite have the guts to do something that bold. This might be tied also to the fact that Barbie, just in terms of affecting change on the world, is much more attuned to a spirit of collectivism. Like all the Barbies have to band together to change something. Whereas in Enchanted, it's literally someday my prince will come and save me. You, you know, it's it's the the one person that you are relying on rather than the group collective uh, and affecting change in the world. The Barbies are unionized. <laughs> <laughs> There's a feeling that you know, Giselle never says, like, I've got mine, the rest of the world can go hang. But there is sort of a feeling of that. You know, mm-hmm. she's the protagonist. What matters is that she she gets the right man, because of course, she's going to get a man. But the rest of the world still being kind of a, a dark and weird and cynical place isn't really important. Like, there is that one couple that she she manages to affect by confronting them. And then a whole bunch of little girls that get pretty dresses in the end. Like, she she is still sort of living with and interacting in the world, which, 
you know, it just occurs to me for the first time, what happened to her business when she left town in Enchanted? Like we spent a bunch of time dealing with Patrick Dempsey's career and what he's going to have to do to maintain it. How come we don't even mention the fact that leaving her very popular boutique in New York is like a transition for her? Oh, this is in the sequel, you mean, in Disenchanted? I was like, what what happened? (laughs) (laughs) The longest post-credit scene ever. You missed it. (laughs) Sorry, just had a a weird moment there. I was, I I was, I was thinking like, I was thinking that in terms of just uh, as a labor thing of just like, this is unpaid rodent labor that that she's exploiting (laughs) for uh, for her her dress business. But all that said, yeah, I I think it's refreshing that in Barbie, there is a sense that one person getting what they need to make them happy really isn't enough. We've got to fix the system. We've got to bring people, we've got to wake people up and educate people and, and bring them out of this trap. I think there's also something particularly subversive and kind of dangerous in an interesting way in Barbie, in that when Ken comes back with patriarchy... It makes sense that like all the other Kens would suddenly say like, oh, yeah, we want to be in charge of everything and get everything we want and not have to worry about what women think. But the fact that all of the Barbies just immediately snap into it mm-hmm. and say things like we don't want to have to think anymore. Working is hard. We we just we just want to like serve up brewski beers and look pretty. There's not a really compelling argument for that to happen. And yet there are certainly people who have that attitude in the real world and presenting that kind of femininity, that dependent, passive, you make the decisions, tee hee femininity as something that's alluring to people, as mm-hmm. something that has to be kind of actively escaped. I think is pretty smart and also pretty aggressive. Maybe one of the most aggressive things in the movie, in spite of some some fairly aggressive and confrontational things being brought out, is just the idea that patriarchy could be tempting to women as well. And I, I just don't think Enchanted kind of has that kind of brain in its head no, no, where no. it comes this to. This is like the worst. <laughs> Enchanted is getting beat up. I mean, it's, just, it's just such a puny vision compared to Barbie that just can't I feel I feel uh, kind of bad for enchanted. I mean, it's, 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 it's a first step though. It's I mean it's like yeah. it's like looking back at some of the earliest movies that had you know overt out gay characters. If you look back at kind of the beginning of that movement and say oh these movies are weak these these gay characters aren't dynamic protagonists who get everything they want. Well, consider the time. This was a stepping stone. This this wasn't the end game of, uh, you know, the cinema. Cinema keeps evolving. The world keeps moving forward. Those blah, blah, blah had to walk so blah, blah, blah can fly, you know? I, like, we're not, I don't think we're beating up on Enchanted. I think we're acknowledging that it was somewhat of its time and that it was it was kind of a first step in the direction of Barbie, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I think she probably just... <laughs> ignored it altogether <laughs> but, uh, although but, now uh, now i'm kind of wishing i had pushed for a clueless pairing but yeah one, damn one, it one, Genevieve. One, <laughs> but I, I but i don't think there would be enough actual like connections in terms of like the narratives although i will uh use uh once again clueless to bring us into another connection between barbie and enchanted and that is uh wardrobe as comedy which is 
again something that that clueless does as as well but i think it is done more memorably in in both of these films honestly like uh, to give it up for enchanted like there are few things in the film as funny as the visual of her in that giant hoop skirt just like maneuvering through sewer grates or doorways or what whatever you know and then of course, the recurring gag of her cutting up curtains and just leaving like perfect cutouts <laughs> of the patterns, <laughs> y- y- you know. And then in Barbie, like just so much of it, the wardrobe is just over the top to the extent that it's funny in and of itself. But there are actual like kind of wardrobe slash costuming based gags, like when actual like barbie outfits get like thrown into the air and freeze framed onto onto the screen you know so Um, so product names can pop up so we know exactly what this outfit was and what it was being marketed as yeah exactly and so it can be something as like blatant as that to something as sort of just you know straightforward as the visual of them in their rollerblading outfits in the real world for the first time which is sort of the giant hoop skirt equivalent moment in Barbie, I think, you know. So I don't know if there's a whole lot more to say beyond that. Uh, well, it's it's interesting that you're talking about Clueless because Mona May did the costumes for both Enchanted and Clueless. Uh, so and in fact, Mona May, you see her in Enchanted very briefly. There's a scene where um, Giselle and uh, the daughter, whose name I can't remember, they go on like a little shopping spree before she goes to the ball and one of the clerks who sells her something is Mona May. Uh. But this is sort of a segue into something else related to costumes. But one of the things that really just resonated with me so much and that I found so striking about Barbie is, you know, ultimately her choice is do I want to stay being a Barbie doll, being exactly the same, looking the same, or do I want to be a human woman, which means I'm going to age and I'm going to die. And that seed that that is the idea of the film is planted shortly after she gets to the real world. She sits down on a bench and and is in an absolutely ridiculous outfit, a pink, Western, absurd outfit. And she looks over at this woman who's sitting next to her, who happens to be famed costume designer Anne Roth. Anne Roth. One 91-year-old woman in real life. And Barbie looks at her and she's just like awestruck. She's never seen a woman who looks like this in Barbie land. And she says, you're, you're beautiful. And Roth looks at her and she goes, I know it, <laughs> which is just like the best <laughs> response. And I was just so moved by that. Like, how often do you get to see a movie where a 91-year-old woman is called beautiful and on top of it called beautiful by a younger, traditionally beautiful woman? And I, I just, I just th- I think it's such a beautiful scene. And Greta Gerwig has talked about like, it was suggested to her, like, maybe you can take that scene out because it really doesn't advance the narrative. And she was like, if I take that out, I don't know what the movie's about anymore. Swear and, God. And, just like murder these people who say stuff like that. Yeah, right? <laughs> God, why are they anywhere near art of any kind? It's just, what is wrong with you? Well, thank, <laughs> thank God though, they listened to her and she stuck to her guns about it because I do think it yes. would have changed everything if she took that out. The thing is, though, Scott just finished saying that he he doesn't think that this movie had anything to do with Enchanted or that Gerwig is aware of Enchanted at all. But Enchanted has that exact same moment when Giselle is coming into Robert's uh, law firm for the first mm-hmm. time. There's a statue there that it's it's not quite the traditional stone Venus, but it's something very close. It's a, a very rotund woman uh, represented in bronze. It's just this very like... 
shiny, like dominant statue in this space in the lobby of a building. And she stops and she's awestruck by it. Mm -hmm. And Robert kind of gives her a weird look and tries to haul her along. And she stops and she says, she's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's it's the exact same moment. And Robert certainly doesn't know what to do with it. And the movie just moves on past it. It's not like the statue can turn and say, yeah, I know. Yeah. But it's it's an exact echo. That's that's really interesting. I, I yeah, mean, I'm so I, but glad I think, you brought that up. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I guess I f- it, it meant something more to me that Barbie says it to an actual real woman. Oh, for sure. And I think they make Gerwig makes more of the moment. Like she makes you take it in more than Enchanted does with that other scene. Point Barbie. Yeah, it's, it's certainly more important. <laughs> it's certainly more important that it's interactive and that it's somebody yeah. who had an impact and was important in this space. It's mm-hmm. it's not just a completely random woman. But again, this may be just kind of a case where Enchanted walked so so Barbie could fly. You know, a, a mm-hmm. case where having the the daring to put this idea out helps other people have the daring to put this idea out. Mm-hmm. I we moved on past costumes, but I actually want to circle back to costumes just kind of to talk about the point of himbo costumes. Both of these movies have a very prominent himbo that have, are kind of like standouts in the story that the acting job is a lot of fun, that they got a lot of praise for, that they just both characters seem to be being played by actors who are just really, really embracing the chance to play something very big and bold and broad and dumb. And both of them, their kind of main costume is a costume with big, big, broad shoulders, big, broad, fake shoulders. In Ken's case, it's the the big faux fur jacket that he wears open shirted. In Edward's case, it's those incredible bell sleeves on the weird stripy royal tunic that he wears. But both of them just kind of strike me as kind of a... A sort of parody of masculinity, like an, a, the idea of big, broad shoulders making a big, bold man, but overstated to a, a ridiculous degree. And also kind of incorporated with some nods to like feminine clothing. I mean, obviously, Ken is wearing a big white fur coat, <laughs> you know, and uh, at Prince Edward's got, you know, his satiny slit sleeves, you know, I mean, and these it's not that these are, quote unquote, female costumes, you know, but they do kind of not they they are feminine presenting masculinity. I don't know quite quite how to uh I'll, I'll uh, make this simple for you, it, Genevieve. But, Harry uh, Styles would totally wear that faux fur coat. <laughs> of course. Oh, I'm so glad we're getting a hit on all your favorites yes. on this on this episode, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that 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 is a, a perfect a perfect way to put it. And I think it's intentional in the case of Barbie, for sure. I think in again in Enchanted, it's more just kind of calling back to the Disney uh, homage. Like it's basically is it Sleeping Beauty's prince that has those sleeves? I think. Well, they remind me of Snow White sleeves, to be honest. Right. Yeah. And I don't know Um, if that was intentional or not, but maybe. Regardless, it is a true, like we talked a bit about uh, the Gaston of it all in The Enchanted, but both of these movies, I think, kind of lean a little more into the modern idea of the himbo. Just the the good-looking, good-natured, empty-headed, uh, croc-style hunk who just kind of like lumbers about being... Not not really necessarily dangerous or harmful, but not necessarily capable of looking out for himself or taking care of himself either. 
Genevieve, you uh, had originally put this down on our connections list as Mansells in Distress. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you see connections between the two of them in terms of, like, do you, do you think Ken needs rescuing, I guess, basically? I was actually kind of more having wordplay fun there than, than anything, uh, more thinking that Ken is distressed than he, than he needs saving. He is a distressed Mansell, I guess. Whereas in uh, Enchanted, like there is, we kind of talked about the very bad scene at the bad and confusing scene at the end where Robert, Robert, why can't I remember his name? Yeah, it is Robert isn't because it? he's boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, where where Robert is saved, kind of by Giselle, maybe Mm-mm. you know, or, or he's saved pl- by the chipmunk. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I really just liked the phrase Mansell's distress more, more than anything. But I mean, it, at the beginning, especially with Ken, like his neediness for Barbie just to like acknowledge him. And it, it's not quite like he needs her to save him, but he needs her to like to exist, you know? So it's kind of a deeper, once again, extension of the idea than than in Enchanted, uh, which is simply just kind of doing a simple gender flip of the trope. I feel like we could go on for another hour about these two movies. Uh, One of the things that just struck me about Barbie is there's, there's so much to unpack because it's so dense. There are so many gags in so many modes. On the other hand, we're running very long with this episode and, uh, you know, in the spirit of letting women get out into the world and and be themselves and do whatever they want, we don't want to tie Genevieve down to like 20 hours of editing on this one. So we're just going to do the the thing that we sometimes do and kind of try to blitz past some of the other connections here. Uh, Genevieve, you pointed out uh, like both of these movies lampshading aspects of kind of classic Hollywood construction. And uh, particularly here, we've got Helen Mirren as the narrator of Barbie and Julie Andrews as the narrator of, of Enchanted, both of them kind of servicing the movie in terms of you know, trying to bookend it and and make it feel like a a classic story that is being told. But there are some differences there. Yeah, I mean, Helen Mirren's uh, narration is what I was thinking of specifically when I put lampshading down as a connection because of the line where uh, she basically says to the like note to filmmakers, Margot Robbie is not the person to be making this point uh, right right now. And there's nothing i mean julie andrews narration it doesn't have anything even remotely close to that it is just very a book endedness but it being julie andrews specifically who she is not a disney princess uh but she is uh, obviously has very big disney associations and enchanted is to a certain extent in the early going kind of poking at the idea of oh disney princesses are are anti-feminist or we you know like she he he gives her a, a book of female heroes because he doesn't want her you know getting into into princesses and it's sort of like poking at this idea that like we're not supposed to admire the disney princesses right from the get-go yeah uh, but enchanted doesn't really engage much further with it beyond that one little moment between mm-hmm. patrick dempsey and his daughter whereas that's practically the entire point of Barbie. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so and both of these movies are also about the the quote unquote stereotypical female role and how it fits into romance. And both of them kind of upend it once again, one of them to a much bigger degree and in a much more subversive way. 
Both of these movies are about women coming out of fantasy worlds where they're comfortable and happy in a very uh, fantasy version of femininity, a very cliched version of femininity, and then starting to doubt that version of femininity because they're exposed to something else and ending up wanting more for themselves. Both of these movies are kind of making fun of past cliches about what femininity looks like, whether it's a fashion doll who has uh, endless changes of, of clothing or a, a kind of cute and perky, harmless girl who might be 16, might be 15 years old, and yet is looking for a husband. Like both of these movies just <laughs> are kind of coming in from very similar angles, even if they one of them takes it much further than the other. I mean, it's interesting that they both ultimately choose to be in the real world. I mean, their their choices in the end are similar. The difference being, you know, Giselle is choosing it because she wants to be with Robert and Barbie is choosing it because she wants to experience what it means to be a woman just on its own terms, regardless of anything romantic related. And the last line of Barbie is just... <laughs> tremendous. Oh, absolute classic. Yeah. yeah. Just like, like nobody's perfect level... All-timer, for sure. <laughs> that is a really excellent point that I had not thought of in terms of both of them expressly choosing to leave their fantasy world. I, I don't know why I didn't see that. Yeah, I've been so hung up on how these movies both come from an artificial fantasy world, and yet I didn't really see the degree to which they both revolve around characters choosing to let go of that in some in, in pursuit of something real. How how did I miss that connection? <laughs> Point Enchanted and Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> finally, glad, finally they are equals. <laughs> I mean, not if we count up the whole totals from all of uh, uh, this episode, but you know what? We can leave that here in this moment of of balance between the two of them. I am glad that we found a point that they're both equal on. Enchanted is streaming on Disney Plus and is rentable through various services. It's also available on DVD and Blu-ray. Barbie is currently in the theaters. Long may she reign. wraps it up for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Normally, this is where we would put a segment called Your Next Picture Show, where we recommend something that we want to put on your radar. But we're running very, very long on this episode. We're all a little tired. We all need to go out and leave the fantasy world of this podcast and uh, choose the real (laughs) world. So we'll just say, as far as recommendations go, we talked about Greta Gerwig's other movies. We talked about movies that inspired her, like Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And we recommend all these movies, as well as Clueless. We also discussed among ourselves other movies that we could pair with this one, including a couple of movies that Gerwig specifically said inspired her tonally or conceptually, including Pee-wee's Big Adventure and The Truman Show. Uh, All of these are movies that we discussed for pairings. All of them are movies that we kind of discussed for placing here for recommendations. But in the end, we can just say we recommend all of these movies. They helped inform Barbie. And uh, all all of them are favorites of somebody here. So we're just going to leave it at that for this week. We'll be back on August 15th and 22nd with another set of episodes. Scott, you want to tell us about those next episodes? The new Ira Sachs movie, Passages, opened to a rare ratings controversy after the MPA gave it an NC-17 rating, almost certainly due to an explicit sex scene between two men, which tells you a lot about the history of queer cinema and the rating system. But the fluidity of sexual desire is an important part of the film, 
which follows a German filmmaker, played by Franz Rogowski, whose already shaky marriage to a man is upended by his decision to have an affair with a young French woman. The nature of this unusual and ultimately destructive love triangle calls to mind John Schlesinger's groundbreaking 1971 film, Sunday Bloody Sunday. Once again, a bisexual man, played by Murray Head, carries on romantic relationships simultaneously with a doctor, played by Peter Finch, and a recent divorcee, played by Glenda Jackson. So on our next set of episodes, we'll sort out the complicated emotions and impulses of adults who have entered into very modern relationships, flaws and all. For now, we welcome your feedback on Enchanted, Barbie, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Jen, let us start with you. Where can people find your work? Where can people find you writing about Alan and Barbie and many other things? You can find my work at Vulture and New York Magazine. I was about to say go to Twitter. I'm still going to say that because <laughs> I refuse to call it by that other name. Uh, you can find me there at Cheney J. What about you, Genevieve? Oh, well, Jen, funny you should ask. I, uh, you can find my work also at Vulture.com. Wait, we but my work, work together? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, although although you are doing the the hard work of writing actual words that go out into the world, and I'm just kind of reading them and putting them out there. So yeah. you know, I'm <laughs> yes, editors do no works whatsoever. <laughs> we just sit around and read but, things all day. It's super yep, easy, exactly. <laughs> but you know, the the joy of my work is getting to edit wonderful writers like Jen and oh hey, some guy named Scott Tobias. Hey, what about you? Where, where can we find I your work? For, I write uh, for Vulture too. I write about righteous gemstones and succession and I don't know, winning time uh, is happening yeah so you can find me on x at, <laughs> at scott underscore tobias that just sounds so uh, dumb not no offense scott but it's just so you can find me at uh you can find me on blue sky also uh, at scott at just at scott tobias um uh my primary uh, outlet is uh, the newsletter that i write with keith phipps that's the reveal uh it's the reveal the reveal.substack.com um i reviewed barbie uh but i also have done quite a lot of other stuff uh and while keith is not here so uh i might as well might as well uh shout him out since since we are partners in this uh he also he is he is my partner at the at the reveal he writes for uh other fine publications including vulture uh gq and the ringer and uh he's at at kfips 3000 on blue sky and on x (laughs) natasha Tasha, do you feel left out not writing for Vulture? I actually feel super left out. I was going to actually say that. Uh, I wrote for Vulture once in like 2016, I think, uh, before I got the full-time job at Vox Media, where I am currently the film editor at uh, Polygon.com. I guess technically still film and streaming editor, but we're about to uh, revise all of our titles. So the redundancy of film and streaming editor someday soon will be no more, uh, as far as I can understand. Uh, I'm I'm still on Twitter at Tasha Robinson, uh, defiantly. Uh, I also still live in Chicago, where we go to Wrigley Field when we want to see a, a, a game, or we go down to Kaminsky Park in the South when we want to see a basketball game. Ooh, Kaminsky, we, now that, that's, yeah, that's, they still call Wrigley Field Wrigley Field, but Kaminsky, that's... Uh, I'm just waiting for them to change it to, uh, you know, Groupon gets you the best deals every time field or something like that, because <laughs> that's, that's, that's right the way... Now, it's 
name changes go in Chicago. Uh, Still look up at the Sears Tower whenever I go down, whenever I go downtown. At any rate, uh, you can find me on Twitter. There, theoretically, sort of find me on on Blue Sky. I haven't done anything there yet. Also, but I didn't mention it because I was like, I don't know who's going to look. See how it feels just to say X, Tasha. Just see how it feels. Terrible. I'm just. Extremely, extremely ignoring you, Scott. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little tired of social media and like starting again from scratch on a new one. It just makes me weary. I maybe, maybe I'm finally just going to go join Scott Tobias's beloved Peach and call it a day. In the meantime, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on X at Next Picture Pod. <laughs> Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash next picture show. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, X, or wherever you listen to the show. Thank you to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>